Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and today I'm joined by Alicia Grauso. She is the editorial lead of Adam Tickets, and her writing can be found all over the internet. Alicia, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I am great. It's very hot here in the room that I'm in, but other than that, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's finally getting warm here in LA. We were kind of we had crappy weather for the first like five six months of the year. Now it finally feels like it's summer. Yeah, I I'm originally from Arizona, so the heat doesn't bother me. It's the humidity. So anytime it gets uh, even more than like twenty percent humid, I I can't stand it. But yeah, your body's like I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> So since this is the Movie Marathoners podcast, I always just like to start by asking my guests if you've ran a marathon. So have you ran a marathon, Alicia? Oh, good Lord, no. No. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, sadly, I am not a marathoner, nor am I very much of a runner. I love the idea of being a runner. Um, and every spring, I'm like, I'm going to run around all the things. I'm going to buy new shoes. I'm going to I'm going to get in a routine. And then like two weeks in, I'm like, I am so bored. And so <laughs> then I realized I've, I've come to accept in my 30s that I love the idea of being a runner, not actually being a runner. So no, I have not. Okay, well, that's perfectly fine. Everybody's welcome here. So, <laughs> But I mean, I also get very bored when I run. So I try and listen to podcasts as often as possible. There you so go. Yeah. Helps a little bit, but... So this week, we'll be running through the latest MCU film, that's Spider-Man Far From Home. We're going to warm up with brief spoiler-free thoughts on the film, kind of the MCU in general, as well as other Spider-Man films. So while we're not going to be spoiling anything from Far From Home in that section, we will most likely be spoiling definitely Endgame and several other films, so just be warned about that. After that, we'll run into spoiler territory, where we can talk freely about the film, and then we'll round out the episode with our point two section, where we discuss what else we've been watching. So first, let's read a synopsis of Spider-Man Far From Home. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man must step in, excuse me, must step up to take on new threats in a world that has changed forever. Spider-Man Far From Home stars Tom Holland, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jake Gyllenhaal. It is written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who uh, originally wrote Homecoming, and it's directed again by Homecoming director John Watts. Everywhere I go, I see his face. I just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone. You gonna be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. What? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work because I am going on vacation. So, Alicia, the first thing I wanted to ask you was what do you think about overall the Spider-Man character? When was the first time you were introduced to him as a character? Like, did you grow up reading the comics or... Oh yeah, I was a I was a kid uh, when I first was introduced to him. I mean, Spider Man's kind of always been in kind of just the collective pop culture conscience. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there were like cartoons when I was a kid. Um, and uh, actually, I got into the comics in high school. It's my first high school boyfriend. 
uh, he was a huge Spider-Man fan. And so I was that cliche that I started getting to comic books because my boyfriend did. <laughs> uh, and I started reading them and I, I love them. And it's funny because years later he was like, I think you actually know more about Spider-Man now than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was in college is when the first uh, Sam Raimi trilogy came out. And those kind of made me fall in love with the character again because I had grown away from comics in college, just being busy and, you know, school and other things. Um, and those movies presented him in an entirely different medium and format. And so it made me kind of, you know, remember why I love the character so much and why he's been kind of a woven throughout my life um, at every step of the way. Um, But yeah, I've I've been a Spider-Man fan for for quite some time. Yeah. So what is it that you like about him or what's what's kind of the thing that separates Spider-Man from everybody else for you? He's good. There is an innate kind of purity to the goodness of Spider-Man that... I don't really think any other superhero captures. And Mm -hmm. with Spider-Man, there's also a kind of a lack of cynicism. Um, He's been through just as much, if not more than, you know, every other superhero, but he never really allows himself to be dark or cynical. It's not really a thing that suits him. He's good purely for the sake of being good, not because he wants to be a hero, but because he is heroic. And so I think that there is kind of an innate purity of his character that makes you want to root for him no matter what. I mean, there's also the, you know, the relatability and there is that certainly. But for me, it's his just pure goodness of heart even when he makes mistakes and even if he's having a bad day, you know that he will always, always, always do the right thing. I, I've always really liked uh, kind of like you said, the, the reliability or the um, relatability of Spider-Man and kind of the whole point of Spider-Verse, which was anybody can be Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And I, I never, I didn't really read comics when I was a kid. I, I kind of like came into comics later in life because of the MCU and because of, the the Raimi films and everything like that. I wanted to kind of see where the character was coming from and kind of fill in that that backstory that I that I was missing. Um, do you have a favorite like Spider Man arc or anything like that? Oh man, or um, a, a must read maybe. <laughs> oh geez, you know this is kind of a cliche, but I really love the Superior Spider Man arc. I was gonna say that one. Yeah, it was so controversial at the time, and now I have to. <laughs> I have to make the disclaimer that I am friends with Dan Slott. Oh, really? Yes. But in, in, my, in fairness, I read Superior Spider-Man and loved it long before he and I ever became friends. Um, but I love that it was an example of something that was so controversial at the time that ended up becoming one of the stories that basically became one of the purest Spider-Man stories ever written, mm-hmm. which is what happens if you take Spider-Man, but you remove that thing, that fundamental core of goodness and responsibility from him? What happens if you take those like fundamental components of what makes Peter Parker, Peter Parker away and give him the same powers? Um, And then there's also that just kind of 
the amazing, there are two amazing scenes that I remember that are tied into that story. The first is when Doc Ock uh, is uh, body swapping with him. So for those of you listening that don't know, basically there's a dying Doc Ock and he transfers his consciousness into Peter Parker's body and traps Peter Parker's consciousness in his dying body. And as they swap, uh, he starts getting all of Peter's this is not voluntary, mind you. Uh, but as they swap, <laughs> he starts getting all of Peter's memories, all the horrible tragedies and just the weight of everything, the failures he's had. And, and uh, Doc Ock now in Peter's body kind of buckles. And he's like, how do you bear the weight of this? And Peter Parker basically says, because you have to, because that's what I do, because I'm Spider-Man. And, and it, really shows that Spider-Man is who he is because he doesn't waste his last moments in that dying body kind of swearing revenge or whatever. He basically makes a point to look at Doc Ock and says he knows he's dying and he says, you know, this is you have to be Spider-Man now. You have to be a good person. You have to take care of the city of New York. So even to the end, which obviously isn't really an end, Peter Parker's thinking about the people of New York and not himself. Um, then, of course, there's the amazing moment at the end of all of this, um, which isn't it's technically not part of the arc, uh, but it's kind of fallout from the arc where you have comic book stuff happens. Peter gets a body back. And so now you have Doc Ock as Peter Parker and Peter Parker, Peter Parker. And then they have a showdown and a fight in front of all the spider people. And Doc Ock's like, you know, I should be the leader of the spider people, blah, blah, blah. And. Peter basically whoops his ass and says, and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm, I'm basically the OG Spider-Man and that's why I'm leader. And it's um, kind of one of those stand up and cheer moments. So I, I think that whole arc and the, uh, the surrounding story uh, at, at the end of it, in the aftermath, I think it's maybe one of the purest Spider-Man stories ever written. And I just, I really, really appreciate that he did it with such a unique angle. That was the first Spider-Man story that I read too, and then went straight into Spider-Verse after that. Mm -hmm. And I love how bananas that whole yeah. idea is with the the totem, the spider totems and all mm -hmm. that crazy stuff. But I, I definitely agree that the superior Spider-Man is definitely one that people should check out if they're looking to get into comics. And I think for me, I was always so scared about getting into comics because I didn't know where to start. They can be overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with the Spider-Verse, it's so, you know, there's like 12 different kind of sub arcs of that story going on that I didn't quite know what I needed to understand everything with. But yeah, it's it's all great. So definitely. And there's like out. a bajillion spider people. And yeah, it can be really confusing. So but it's it's worth reading. So is uh, Peter Parker your favorite Spider-Man? Yeah, Peter Parker's my boy. It's it's like having yeah. it's like being a Doctor Who fan. You you like all the doctors, but one doctor is your doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, and Peter Parker is my Spider-Man. So I like I love all the rest. I, I love all of them. I love the Spider People, but Peter Parker's my my Spider. spider so person. then, who's your uh, Peter Parker? If we transition to the movies here, is it is mm. it Tobey Maguire? Man, that's tough. Tobey Maguire is probably. He'll always be the Spider-Man of my heart uh, just because <laughs> the those movies got me through some really rough times. Um, so not to get too real, but when I was in college, I had my first uh, depressive spell. I have seasonal depression. 
and I can manage it now. It doesn't bother me much. Um, but when I was in college for the first time, like I didn't know what it was and my friends kind of dragged me out of my dorm room. Um, it took me to see Spider-Man and that movie was the first time that I remember like feeling things again and kind of wanting to be active and participate in the world. And, um, so man, I watched that movie so many times. And then I think I saw Spider-Man two, like six times in the theater. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was excessive. Uh, even, even for the movie going nerd that I was, but, uh, so yeah, he's kind of always will have a soft spot in my heart. But I will say that I was just texting my friend the other day because I saw it yesterday and I just texted him. I was like, God, what a gift Tom Holland is Yeah. as Spider-Man Peter Parker. I think he's the best of the three of them. And I do love Andrew Garfield, but I think he was done dirty by Sony. Yep. Um, I don't think he was ever given the chance to be Spider-Man. So I recognize that I think Tom Holland is the best in the role. Um, for sure. Like he's, that kid is just so, he just oozes that kind of earnest sincerity and awkward, you know, charm that you just, he makes you want to root for him. Yeah. He's, he's got like pluck or something. I don't know if that's a word you would, but yeah, he just, he lights up the screen. I absolutely love him. Yeah. I was just saying like the Spider-Man movies for the MCU, they haven't been that complex they're simple high school movies but it doesn't matter because he's so charismatic when he's on the screen it's like you just want to watch him be spider-man or peter parker it doesn't matter he's just so fun to watch on screen when anybody talks about these kind of things i always think that toby was a very good peter parker Mm -hmm. and andrew garfield was an excellent spider-man and tom holland kind of bridges the gap between the two of them and is just fantastic everywhere so I'm a, I'm a huge Tom Holland fan. It's also, I mean, Spider-Man's also lasted for, he's been around for so many decades and there's so many kind of iterations of him that, you know, that's, that's kind of what people tend to boil it down to is Toby was a great Peter Parker. Andrew was a great Spider-Man. Tom Holland is both. But I also think too, that, that the tone and the, the style they were going for with the Sam Raimi movies was very much the kind of classic silver age Spider-Man. Whereas I always felt like Andrew Garfield's version was more kind of the ultimate Spider-Man version. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and they're, they're characterized in different ways. I mean, Spider-Man's definitely grown over the years and he's definitely been portrayed a little bit differently depending on what arc and what run and what universe he's been in. So it's a little unfair for people that rag on Andrew Garfield because one, he never got a fair shake because that was a whole mess with those movies. Um, right. It had nothing to do with him, but the, the style of super Superman, the super, or the, sorry, the Spider-Man universe they were pulling from for the Raimi trilogy and the amazing Spider-Man trilogy or well, amazing Spider-Man um, completely different universes from like amazing Spider-Man to the classic silver age, you know, origin Spider-Man. So people tend to overlook that as well too. Yeah. I'm definitely not a person that uh, intentionally rags on, Andrew Garfield at all I actually I mean mm-hmm. I I actually liked that first one quite a bit still and um, I think some of the action in the second Amazing Spider-Man is some of the best Spider-Man action we've had so far so I think they each each of the iterations does have their merit 
But I think if I had to only have one Spider-Man from here on out, I think I would definitely pick Tom Holland. Yeah. Uh, I just think he has, he's just a fantastic actor too. I don't think these movies particularly ask him to do that much, but the little moments that do require a bit more than just kind of being in a motion capture suit, I think he nails those and he just has so much emotion in all those scenes even in something like infinity war you know he has one moment to kind of show the seriousness of him basically dying and i think tom holland nails that and another actor i don't think would be able to pull that off as well yeah i mean he really does he you know even if he doesn't have a lot to work with like when he hurts you hurt Mm -hmm. and and when he's happy you're happy when he triumphs like he's very much one of those actors that, and I hate to say it, but there's a, there's a certain something that certain actors and actresses have that I call it the, the, can I swear on this podcast, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <go> for it. <laughs> I call it the, uh, the, the, the give a shit factor. Like mm-hmm. there's just something about them that like you give a shit about what happens to them, no matter what you want them to be happy. You hurt when they hurt, you cry when they cry. And he's one of those, um, actors that, you know, even his scene in Endgame, you know, when, when Tony Stark, I mean, he, yeah. Peter Parker had barely been on screen and he barely, I mean, he hugged, uh, Tony Stark and then they went right to into battle and so that last scene where Tony's dying and Peter's just bereft like your heart breaks it I wasn't mm. crying like I was like oh, okay this has been inevitable like he I mean they've been building up this it's like the first Avengers movie okay it's sad but whatever and then when Peter started crying then that's when I started bawling and I'm like it was because he was hurting not necessarily because Tony Stark was dying which yeah. I realize is messed up but that's the power that Tom Holland has is he has that intangible quality that it really, really make he has that relatability that Spider-Man has where you're like, you want good things for him. Yeah. There's that scene in homecoming where he is like trying to get, get up from under the rubble. The famous, yeah. Under the rubble. It's the famous, uh, lifting the rubble scene from yeah. the, the comics. Right. Mm-hmm. And just God, the way his voice breaks when, when he's kind of like, yelling at himself and like trying to you know mm-hmm. or when he's when he's just screaming out help somebody help me that i thought that tom holland it, he's just incredible i love watching him act and and even in other movies that aren't spider-man movies that mm-hmm. you know like the impossible i was he's like what 12 in that movie maybe and yeah he's incredible i think he was like fifth maybe he's younger but he looks so much younger he also did lost city of z yeah which is really good yeah, it's a it's a long movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's long, but it's interesting because I remember seeing that movie before I saw Homecoming. Okay. And I remember because he doesn't come in until like the third act, and it's a good movie, but it's a, it's a slow burn. Mm-hmm. And the very first scene where it jumps forward in time and Charlie Hunnam and he kind of square off, um, and he, he steals the scene from Charlie Hunnam. And I just thought like, he just jumps out at you. And I thought, man, this kid has that intangible quality that your eyes just follow him when he's on the screen. Like you put it, I mean, he, you put him next to a bunch of different, more seasoned actors and you, he's the one you pay attention to. And I just remember thinking that like, okay, 
all right, okay, I buy that. Like this kid can be Spider-Man. Like I, I get it now. I understand it. One of the other things that I really like about Tom Holland's performances is that he does like he feels young. He, he just has like a youthfulness, mm-hmm. and I think every single one of the movies he's in does a really good job at reminding you that this is a kid. So even in something like Endgame, he has that moment when Thanos sends down all the blasters and he's holding the gauntlet and he just kind of fetal positions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, what is this child doing on a battlefield? It's letting him out of here. (laughs) But I thought of that when I was watching Far From Home. I was just like, there was one moment I was just like, oh my God, this kid needs so much therapy. And yeah, (laughs) it was, it, it, the scene you were mentioning in Homecoming, it's the the recreation of lifting the rubble. That's um, you probably already know this, but if you don't, because you said you don't, you didn't really grow up with the comics. That's one of the most famous scenes in the comics. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's from Silver Age Spider-Man. It's lifting the rubble, and I thought they recreated that scene really well and updated it for modern time. But it's that scene, it's that moment where he starts freaking out, like convinced he's gonna die freaking out like just just yeah his voice is breaking like you said like somebody help me somebody help me and at first because we're so used to seeing a version of spider-man that's just like i'm gonna save the day like i'm just gonna do what's right you know and and Mm -hmm. being spider-man that it almost was jarring at first and then a second later i'm like oh he's a 15 year old yes of course this is exactly how a 15 kid would act (laughs) Yes, a 15-year-old kid would absolutely freak out and be scared they're going to die. Like, And so I loved how they did that because that is the moment that he becomes Spider-Man. And yeah. you can see like that click into place. But I just loved how they did that. And like your heart breaks for him in that moment because you just think, holy shit, he's a kid. Like mm-hmm. this is a child <laughs> that is dealing with all of this. Like this is not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. So is it safe to assume that you like Spider-Man Homecoming? I guess we can transition into the more MCU Spider-Man movies. Homecoming. Uh, Homecoming. We can start with just, uh, I'm just curious if where that ranks among the Spider-Man films. Like, yeah, yeah. I loved it. Did that affect your um, expectations for this one at all? Um, I wouldn't say it affected my expectations for this one at all. I was just curious to see, how Marvel was going to do their version of Spider-Man because we've seen a spider, we you know we've, we've seen Spider-Man twice already. Um, and it was kind of done. I don't want to say the same way, but kind of the same way. And I just really loved that. They took everything that we loved about Spider-Man, but updated it. Mm-hmm. Some of the cheesier elements were only hinted at. Uh, I love that they had the the tiger mascot running around everywhere, and so it's like the and all the little Easter eggs they have to to Spider-Man's origin. Um, I love that every time he was about to do something heroic, a tiger would appear in the background. It would either the the mascot be in the background, or it'd be a poster or something or a sign. Uh, I didn't notice that. Would that go get him, tiger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, okay. that was a yep. And that's of course a reference to Mary Jane calling him tiger, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, the first time they meet in the comics. Uh, so in the comics, his uh, Aunt May tries to set him up with uh, her friend's daughter. And Peter Parker's like, and she describes him as she's a very nice girl. And so Peter's like, oh, that translates to like ugly or whatever. And he's like, I don't have time for this. I'm off being Spider-Man. And so every time Aunt May tries to set him up with her, he like sneaks out the window or he <laughs> pretends not to be home. And... Um, 
so he avoids her forever. And then, and every time you see her in the comics, she's always covered by like a plant or like you never see her face. And so her reveal was one of the most stunning reveals in comics because finally he opens the door. Like she runs into her and opens the door to the apartment and she's standing there and she's this leggy, gorgeous redhead model. And her first line to him is face it tiger. You just hit the jackpot. And it's like the, you know, little boys just fell in love all around the world with Mary Jane Watson in that exact moment. So it's become a running thing. So I like how they take elements from the comics, but they update them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I really, I really loved homecoming and I thought it was a great palate cleanser. I, I think it's smart of them to put these movies after kind of the heavier ones, but I thought it was a really good palate cleanser. And I thought far from home was a really good, capper to end game because I mean, the MCU has gotten real dark <laughs> and so I think Spider-Man's the good balance that reminds you like oh it's not all doom and gloom like there's there's Spider-Man yeah so given that there's you know like even in the last two years if you count both Endgame and Infinity War there's been four films featuring Spider-Man across two years so this would be the, the fifth one I think um so there's like we're not like in a shortage of Spider-Man. There's almost like mm -mm. a bounty or an embarrassment of riches just because, you know, I mean, Spider-Verse is, I would argue, basically a masterpiece. So um, Spider-Man PS4 as well. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of Spider-Man. What so what do you think? Like, does Far From Home live up to that? Does it distinguish itself in a way? I, I think as a as a story, it doesn't. Okay. But as a movie that as a movie that further establishes Tom Holland as Spider-Man and that shapes him as the version of Spider-Man that he will become in the MCU, I think this movie was probably the most important. There have been hints in the movies before where you can like see the man he'll become. You can see the man that like we know Peter Parker to be from the comics. Mm -hmm. Um but that he doesn't know he'll be yet. And there were moments in this that it, I, I think all throughout this movie, you could kind of see him being molded into that shape of Peter Parker, the, the Peter Parker that we know and love and kind of making decisions about here's the man I'm going to be. And, and here's what I have to decide. Um, and here's what I have to sacrifice. So I, I, I really like that. I like that they're, they're kind of laying the groundwork and the foundational work for who he will be, the kind of hero he will be, because that's been really malleable to this point in kind of the, the universe, because when he is with the adults, so to speak, he's kind of like a sidekick. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the background. And so I, I think this movie more than anything really starts to, bring out those qualities that we know and love in Spider-Man that we know, but that haven't, they're still kind of baking in the MCU. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes a lot of sense to kind of make this as a capper for Endgame, given that I feel like the, the MCU is just now for the very first time kind of getting out of Iron Man and specifically Robert Downey Jr.'s mm -hmm. shadows. So yeah. having that be an actual thing for Tom Holland, Spider-Man to actually be dealing with in the film is pretty clever. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I also really liked this movie. I, I don't know if you actually said that. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. What did you think about kind of the, the high school feel of it as opposed to 
Endgame that is very, uh, one of the things that was most striking to me was, I, I know a lot of people say that the Marvel films are very similar, and I agree in large part. I love almost all the Marvel films, but they do feel very um, samey in their tone and the way that they're filmed and everything like that. But this one, even more so than Homecoming to me, felt like it was really leaning into the the high school rom-com feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's important because something that a lot of moviegoers tend to forget uh, is that there are people of all ages that go to see movies. And I've noticed something that fans of certain properties, geek fans in their 20s and 30s mm -hmm. uh, and 40s, um, you know, some of them tended to be like, oh, Spider-Man, it has no weight. And these movies are just silly high school, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. And you know who relates to that? High schoolers, teenagers, like there need to be younger stories in the MCU. There need to be younger characters in the MCU. It can't always be the heroes in their 30s or I mean, hell caps like in his 90s. And so is Bucky and so is Black Widow. But it can't always be the characters in their 30s and 40s and 50s saving the world like the Marvel Universe in the comics now, it's a, there's been a youth movement. There are so many young characters, uh, Miles Morales, you know, Kamala Khan, Sam Alexander. I mean, you have so many younger characters, and that has not been reflected to this point. It has been on TV, but not in the movies. You need that. And so I really like that this introduces, like, you know what? If you don't like the Spider-Man movies because they're too high school, don't watch them. They're not for you. I feel like that's always the the best answer to just shut up anybody mm -hmm. who's complaining about like a flavor or anything like that. But yeah, I agree. Um, I do think that some of the tropes that come with the high school comedy romantic stuff feels a little bit corny. Sometimes it's a little eye rolly. Like they really lean into um, kind of like goofy comedy sometimes with like the teachers and yeah. uh, things like that. So I think at times that felt like a little bit much, especially because when there are the emotional beats and when they're given a little time to breathe and you have a scene between just Tom Holland and Jake Gyllenhaal or just Tom Holland and uh, Happy Hogan, John Favreau, mm -hmm. like those ones with the actual emotional weight were the ones that like I'm thinking, still thinking about now. And mm -hmm. sometimes the uh, the zaniness of the high school comedy interfered with that. Yeah, I can I can get that. I mean, I definitely can can see why people would think that it didn't bother me as much, I guess, because as a child of the 80s who grew up watching all these John Hughes movies, um, the completely inept, like clueless teachers like that's such a that's such a throwback and an homage to the 80s it definitely works in the film yeah. yeah and so i that didn't bother me as much and i know um somebody that i was talking to they they didn't like the we'll say the particular love story that wasn't peter's uh uh how that played out like how over the top that was oh i thought that was funny but I laughed because I was like, oh, my God, have you never seen a teenager in love? Like I, I was obnoxious when I was in love when I was 15 and in love with my first boyfriend, 15, 16. Like, oh, my God, I remember like that movie took me back absolutely to um, 
to just being 15, 16 years old and in love for the first time and just everything was just nervous and new and exciting. And, and I personally love that because I was like, it was like, oh God, that is so every teenager. Yes. Yeah. But that, that particular story beat, I guess that what you're talking about, I thought was really funny. And I liked that they hit it in the, the, uh, the trailers. So I didn't really know anything about that. And yeah, that was one of those ones where you at the start of the movie, when it all this kind of, you know, more typical of high school comedy stuff started happening, it caught me off guard for a second. I was like, oh, OK, so that's what this is, um, because even Homecoming, it did feel John Hughesy in a way. But I didn't think I think that this one is is much more um, like high school comedy in the sense mm-hmm. that they have these little subplots and all the characters actually are given something to do as opposed yeah. to um, just Ned and Peter in the original one. But I, I will say though, that this movie too, though, it has more weight than homecoming, I think, because in the sense that this is the movie that you really see the weight that's on Peter Parker, the pressure he puts on himself, the, the scene where, uh, and this isn't really a spoiler. You kind of see it in the trailers. Um, but it's a scene where they're doing the check giving ceremony with his aunt may. And then, uh, he starts getting asked by all the reporters, like, well, what's going on now? What's happening to the Avengers? What's this? What's, you know, are you the leader of the Avengers? Like, what's your plan for an alien invasion? And he essentially has like a panic attack. It was very, uh, Iron Man three. E. I mean, you look at him and it's like, you realize like this is a well 16 year old kid now like having a panic attack because he's at being asked all these big huge adult questions and he doesn't know because he's a 16 year old kid and he's in the sauna and so he kind of like you see him on the roof and he's just kind of and you're like oh yeah okay of course a teenager a kid would have a panic attack when like and be freaking out like of course he's not going to have the answers like he's a kid and yeah. so that's what I love most, I think, about these movies, that this isn't a Spider-Man that we know that has a, has it together already and that is experienced. Like, this is he's this is still him in his, like, nascent phase where he's still figuring it out and, like, learning these things for the first time. So I, I really enjoy that about these movies. Yeah, this one definitely leans into that much more heavily. I thought the first one, you kind of get hints of that. Peter having to sacrifice his personal life for superheroics, but this one it's very cut and dry that no, if he does this, he can't go on the trip. But if he doesn't, then some people might die, and um, it's much more in the forefront here, which I liked. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to talk about um, before we get into spoilers? I feel like there's a lot of things I know, that I'm we're like, kind of like, like tiptoeing around. And I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm good. I'm ready to jump yeah. into spoilers. Okay, if you had to rate this out of 10, how many stars or points or whatever would you give this? Hmm. I won't hold you to it. That's okay. <laughs> I'd say I'd say at least an 8.5, 8.5 to 9. It's not a perfect 10, um, but I think that as a palate cleanser after Endgame and as a pure spider-man like peter parker figuring it out movie i think it was flawless so um say so i'm gonna give it like i'll say a nine okay great yeah i'll i'll give it an 8.5 um i definitely liked the last half of the movie more than the first half 
I -hmm. thought that kind of the setup of it uh, at the beginning was a, it was a little choppy. Um, They kind of like really quickly rushed through some things that I thought could have been more elaborated on. But I think when a movie, you know, I would much rather have a movie be very strong in the back half than very strong in the front half and then drop the ball. And I think especially the post-credit scenes, which I'm sure we'll talk about, are some of the best post-credit scenes I've seen in a long time. And um, yeah, I I think I I just absolutely love the last hour of this movie and kind of where the plot goes. So yeah, the uh, the post-credit scene, not the mid-credit scene, but the post-credit scene, I was just like, oh, oh, okay, that is not where I thought they were going already, but yeah, they're going there, okay. All right, I see you, Marvel. So yeah, that was that was interesting. That is a good transition into spoilers. So I'll say that we'll have spoilers for Spider-Man: Far From Home starting now. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. Yeah. So that let's talk first about that. That credit scene uh, not the mid credit scene the post credit scene so that's obviously i guess for people who are listening that haven't seen the movie um that is when you find out that nick fury and maria hill are actually the scrolls from captain marvel right good old talos yeah i'm like i'm like oh good to see you again dude yeah because I, I love his character i was so happy it was ben mendelson i i love ben mendelson yeah. he's such a like perfect lovable asshole kind of guy well Um, and i'm so glad that he isn't a villain he wasn't a villain in captain marvel because i was like okay i love ben Mendelssohn, but holy shit how many times we see him be a villain in a blockbuster and i'm like oh okay all right i could get down with him kind of being not a villain but kind of kind of a middle management like an exasperated middle manager that's just trying to keep the ship together you know (laughs) but i absolutely loved that scene because before that, when I was just talking to my friends, when we were, you know, everybody's waiting for the next post credit scene, I was talking, I was like, there's, they kind of like did Nick Fury dirty in this film. They like Nick Fury's supposed to be the smartest man ever. He's kind of an idiot in this. How does he get fooled by Mysterio? Mysterio's kind of not the best villain. Um, I feel like they completely bastardized his character. And then this shows, oh, okay, it's not actually Nick Fury, it's Talos. So, his slightly um, off, like easily fooled nature made a lot of sense. And I can't remember a time that a post credit scene has like had such an impact on what I thought about the film, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I, I didn't, I didn't think they were going for the, uh, the, the secret evasion already. <laughs> Uh, I was like, all right, because that's been such a, I mean, that's been such an ongoing theory. Like it, it was kind of inevitable. It was going there when you start bringing the Cree and the scroll and like you start bringing them into it and shapeshifters at some point it's going there. I just didn't expect them to go there like now. Like I expected mm-hmm. the post credit scene to basically be, um, oh, we're, we're building up to the sinister six. Like you realize Mysterio still, around and, 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 you know, and you see him and you're like, Oh, he's in jail. Oh, look at that. He meets Vulture, you know? So I thought it was going to be very much a sinister six. And then they, yeah, threw a curveball and was like, Oh yeah. And that okay. was even after the first curveball, which is that mid credit scene, yes. which 
shows two things that I went holy shit at. Yeah. <laughs> right. The first one is they show that um, J.K. Simmons is back as yes, that was amazing. Yes, as J. Jonah Jameson. I was so happy well, when that happened. He I, is so in the comics. He he's kind of like that. Like in the comics, it's this whole thing where he kind of gets ousted from the daily bugle like he basically gets too obsessed with spider-man and he gets like ousted from the daily bugle and uh and then he is out of work and then he kind of resurrects himself as an alex jones Infowars type character in the comics so that's exactly what it's like in the comics now uh what has been recently um so it's interesting how again they're kind of taking a lot of the stuff from the comics and how they're adapting them to the big screen yeah and Speaking of like adapting things from the comics, I thought for sure when he was going to say, oh, and, you know, Mysterio reveals Spider-Man's identity because there's so many times in the comics that J.K. Simmons or J. Jonah Jameson is like about to reveal Spider-Man's identity and then like Mm -hmm. the feed cuts out or he unmasks him, but somebody's in front of the camera. I think that happens in the Superior Spider-Man. So so I was like, oh, haha, this is going to be funny. We get to see uh j jonah jameson again and he's gonna look like an idiot when the feed cuts out before mysterio is able to reveal his identity and then and then no it just drops and i feel like that's such a huge change i'm surprised they're already going that route yeah yeah i was real surprised with that because i mean in the comics mysterio frames spider-man for like a bajillion crimes like that's the thing he's done in the comics a lot um but it was interesting because i thought you know, civil the Civil War storyline, they adapted it for the MCU, and it was very different than the comics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as comic book readers will know, in the comics, Peter Parker unmasks himself um, to gain support for the Superhero Registration Act. Like, it's basically the bravest thing he can do. Yeah, that one I have read. <laughs> yeah, obviously that causes a lot of problems. And so he basically makes a deal with uh, Mephisto, the, the kind of... Uh, devil right yeah devil like marvel's version of like satan to undo that like timeline and make it back put it back to the way it was so that spider-man never like nobody knows spider-man's identity again but the difference is the the thing is that he has to sacrifice his marriage with mary jane watson and it's a heartbreaking choice and he makes it because he wants to keep his family and friends safe um i'm very much wondering if that will tie into the third movie in some way where he's finally together with Mary Jane or MJ, not Mary Jane. He's finally together with MJ. Will he have to sacrifice that relationship to keep her safe? Because if everybody knows his identity, then, you know, I'm, I'm, but yeah, like you, I was really surprised that I was like, Oh, okay. They went there already in the second movie. Like that's, man, that's a lot. Like, that's yeah. going to be real interesting to see how, hey, see how they handle that. And if it does get retconned, like it does in the comics, how they'll do that. And if it's going to come at the cost of his relationship with MJ. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's also sort of weird that Spider-Man is the only one of the Avengers that is a, that has a mask and that isn't out there in the open. I know in the comics, uh, Steve Rogers is also like not everybody knows he's Captain America, right? And there's a lot of other characters out there that are in masks, but it's really only Peter in the MCU. So Mm -hmm. 
maybe they're just trying to get that out of the way or something but i really like your idea that's what i'm hoping that's that's what they do and probably not with mephisto but (laughs) yeah i mean they could but but the thing is with like peter parker is uh, what i really liked in homecoming was some of the nods they made to the comics so like in the comics peter guards his identity more carefully than any other even the ones that are masked like daredevil and matt murdoch they'll take their masks off Mm -hmm. uh peter parker never will even when he's in the avengers compound as an avenger with the other avengers he never takes his mask off and it's actually one of the things they, they actually end up like kicking him out of the Avengers because they're like, we just need to know your name. Like, we just need to see your face. We just need to know your name. Like, it's a trust thing. Like, and he's like, I know, but I, I, it's not that I don't trust you, but I have to keep my family safe. And he refuses to do it. And they're like, well, sorry, dude, like you can't be an Avenger then. Like we have to have trust here. And so he won't even mask for the Avengers. Hmm. Um, and there are a ton of shots in the comics of him with a mask half pulled up, uh, usually when he's eating. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I, you never see that in the first, like the Raimi trilogy or Mark Webb's uh, duology. You never see that outside of the upside down rain kiss. Um, but that's why I love that scene where he's just sitting there like eating the churro and like on the phone and you never see, like you see him with his mask half up a lot. Um, so I, I think obviously he has to take the mask off when he's with the other Avengers. Like that's just contract contractual stuff. You know, they, they cast Tom Holland for a reason. So fans are like, this isn't like the comics. Well, calm down. This isn't the <laughs> comics it's movies. And that's how reality works. But I do like that. They've tried to be a little bit more, um, uh, true to the, the spirit of the comics and that he keeps himself masked way more often. Like you even see, like there are moments in far from home where, like he's like people are going to see my face he throws a, a venetian mask on or before he steps on the stage like he makes sure his his mask is in place and so I, I like that they're more careful with continuity and that with this version of spider-man so shifting a little bit what do you think about mysterio and jake gyllenhaal's performance of him i i love jake gyllenhaal um I wish he'd actually channeled a little bit weirder Jake Gyllenhaal energy because okay. I don't think there's an actor that does weird oddball, like quite like Jake Gyllenhaal, like just that manic like energy where it's like, could be on cocaine, could just be a genius. Maybe <laughs> both. Not sure. Like he's so good at that. Um, I wish he had channeled a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really dig him and I really love how they modernize Mysterio's story for this movie. Um, like he's not, you know, in the comics, he's a, a VFX artist and like a failed actor. And so he basically takes and he fails in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry. And he basically takes all the stuff he knows about effects and psychological manipulation and acting. And he uses it to become a supervillain. Mm-hmm. And he's actually a really terrifying villain. Like he's kind of made fun of, but he's the one villain that that has like pretty much driven Peter Parker crazy, made him think he was going nuts. Like gaslit him, has framed him for all these crimes. Like, I mean, he's he's really been a formidable opponent. And so I really thought that the way they updated that was pretty cool. I like that so many of Peter Parker's villains can all be traced back to Tony Stark. 
Like yeah. Tony Stark has yeah. essentially created every single one of Peter Parker's overarching problems for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like, oh, even beyond the grave, Tony Stark is managing to fuck things up for everybody else. Yeah, they've they've got that one line where Edith is the tech that he he gives yeah, yeah, Peter, yeah. and it's even in death, I'm the hero. But it's like even in death, you're also making the villains. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I like that. That's kind of the MCU is still dealing with the repercussions of Tony even after he's gone. Yeah, it's like, God damn it. Like, Tony, really? Like, another, you know, murder? Like, somebody else hell-bent <laughs> on, like... So, I mean, if you think about it, he created Quicksilver, and, I mean, essentially, he's the reason for Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch when they were still villains. Mm-hmm. Ultron. Uh, not Thanos, uh, but uh, Vulture and his whole crew. And so, like, Tony Stark is basically... Oh, uh... Baron Mordo, sort of, um, and he helped in that, and then now Mysterio. So he's pretty much he's he's helped create a good half a dozen of the villains. He's he's both the arsonist and the fireman, and like, and that hasn't stopped. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't actually read any uh, like Spider-Man comics where Mysterio is the villain. Um, I should have done that before going to the movie, but I did read a Daredevil run where uh, Mysterio was in it, and that's the one by Kevin Smith, the Guardian Devil, and I thought that was really cool what what Mysterio was doing there. But yeah, he he comments on how everybody kind of makes fun of him, and he doesn't have like an arc arch nemesis or anything like that. Like nobody really takes him seriously, and but I really liked that Mysterio. The reason they used him here, or maybe. I don't know which came first, chicken or the egg, but Mysterio's whole in like wanting to be a superhero and being like a fake imposter is the exact fear that Peter has of kind of becoming the next Iron Man. So like while Peter has, you know, he's afraid of being a fraud, Mysterio is actually a fraud. And I thought that was a Mm -hmm. very good use of a character that like, let's face it, he's he's a crazy dude with a fishbowl on his head. Like, how do you make that work in a movie? And that's the thing I'm always surprised by with Marvel films is that they always know how to use their characters in perfect ways. Yeah. I think Marvel's done a very good job of taking, because let's be honest, comical characters, especially the ones from Silver Age, can be really cheesy. Yeah. Like, real cheesy. And Marvel's done a really good job of taking those villains um, and, and even some of the heroes and updating them and grounding them for a, in a way that's believable and that isn't cheesy. I mean, look at Dr. Strange. Like when they first announced they were doing Dr. Strange, I went, okay, I don't know how they're going to get that, that whole costume and that, that collar and the, the weird, I have Agamotto and like all that stuff. Like, all right, but Hey man, they managed to make me like Thor. So like, yeah. Okay. And honestly, I, and I, and Scott Derrickson did an amazing job with that. And and made him so grounded and like now he's one of the most badass characters in the MCU and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's super formidable. Like there's nothing cheesy about him at all. And the cape, or the cloak, I should say, the cloak, it's not a cape. Um, the cloak is probably my single single most favorite piece of costuming in the entire MCU is Doctor Strange's cloak levitation. Like I just think the design and the, the work on that is amazing. 
but like that is an example of a character that by all means should have been cheesy as hell, right, right down to his design. And now he's one of the cooler characters in the movies. Yeah. And there are like cheesy moments, I think, especially in this film, like the idea that Jake Gyllenhaal or I guess Mysterio doesn't check to make sure that Peter's dead. I feel that's like a yeah. very super villain comic book kind of thing to do. And then of yeah. course he has that monologue where he's I think that's I think that whole scene is I think what sold Jake Gyllenhaal on this movie. Like they probably were like channeling a little bit of that crazy, yeah, yep. the crazy, yeah. Yeah, and it's also an interesting he's just kind of like ranting about how nobody cares about you until you put on a cape and you're a superhero and I thought that that was very meta i'm sure jake gyllenhaal was like yeah this is why i'm doing this movie so that i can have this little rant about how nobody likes a movie unless it's a superhero movie Mm -hmm. i thought that was kind of funny that's good yeah it's interesting too because as he was doing that rant i was like man this is so familiar to green or not greg he'll keep on saying green goblin uh vultures kind of uh his origin is again like Mm -hmm. you know tony stark and i'm like man I wouldn't put it past Marvel, but it would be so fitting of the MCU and just kind of its MO to create a Sinister Six that basically operates like uh, an like a violent incel or MRA, like alt-right message board, mm. where it's just a bunch of like, we're forgotten by society and we're going to rise up and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, because the speeches they give, I'm like, ooh, that's very much, that could be pulled from like a Reddit, the subreddit or certain message yep. boards now. And, and uh, I, I think it's really interesting. So I'm like, that can't be coincidence that two speeches now or like two motiva- motivations from villains now and Spider-Man movies have had kind of similar arcs. Like I feel like they have to be building toward something there. Yeah. I wonder if like all of the Sinister Six people will be because of Tony or something. And yeah, spider-man's whole arc will be kind of like cleaning up somebody else's mess that would be very interesting kind of like the hero fall from grace and realizing that like he has to be his like because tony always said i want you to be better than me Mm -hmm. and so yeah having to clean up tony's mess and truly realizing where tony screwed up and like what you know that he was a hero but he also created a lot of villains along the way like if that's peter's final lesson or ultimate lesson of separating himself from Tony. Yeah. I was hoping that there was actually going to be a scene where somebody brought that up because there is that, I think one of my favorite, uh, I don't know if it's a set piece or maybe just a scene of Mm -hmm. um, Peter and happy in the plane. I think that whole sequence is so emotionally effective. Yes. But I wanted when Peter was like, I keep messing up. I keep making mistakes. I wanted Happy to be like, you know, Tony, you know, he created Ultron. Like, you don't need to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Have you met Um, your mentor? Yeah. yeah. Have you met your mentor? Like, and he did say, like, it was, he did say that, you know, Tony always put pressure on himself and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, he didn't say like, are you effing? kidding me like tony created half the problems they had like what are you what are you talking about so yeah 
But I, I'm always really surprised by how well the MCU is using Happy Hogan and especially John Favreau. I know there was like a little bit of a falling out right after Iron Man 2 because they were so micromanagey about that movie. But I really like his character here and how he's kind of being used as like a shepherd of the newer characters into kind of keeping part of that older phase one of MCU around. I thought that worked really well. Yeah. And that that one scene or that one moment in that scene where Peter's like working on the suits and Happy kind of looks over at him and smiles and you know it's clear that it's because he recognizes that this this is the next Tony. Um I think a worse movie or a less confident movie would have had Happy be like oh, you remind me of him you, you or something, you know, something really on the nose. And I thought this movie did a very good job of just letting that moment be unsaid and then playing the uh, ACDC music. I, that got a huge cheer from my... Or no, no, Led Zeppelin. I love Led Zeppelin. I groaned. Like I was like, I, lo- I also love, and it's such, a, it's such a small thing, but I love how very, very Gen Z Peter Parker is in these movies. <laughs> yeah. Like... Like, I love you, but you were absolutely the teenager that would drive me insane. Like, I, he is, like, I feel like he'd absolutely be the teenager that would watch an old movie or, like, movie from, like, 20 years ago and be like, did you know this is actually problematic? And you're like, please stop. (laughs) Like, so. Yeah. um, Yeah. But, but yeah, when he was like, I love Led Zeppelin. And I was just like, and it was so funny because everybody of a certain age in the theater groaned. And everybody and like laughed with like a laugh groan and like everybody below a certain age was like it went over their heads. I, so. I actually did not catch that, so I'm I'm part of the problem. <laughs> You're well, yeah, because it's it's ACDC, and then he goes, "I love Led Zeppelin." It's just like, oh, kid, like okay, well, all right, at least you like the song, even if you don't know who sings it. Yeah. One other, uh, I don't know if problem is the word, but uh, one thing that I thought was interesting about the film is that there's this idea that peter's spidey senses are not working throughout the film Mm -hmm. and i felt that it wasn't super well established in the beginning and then they kind of just start working and i think it's pretty easy to connect the dots that it's like oh it's because he's in inner turmoil and the spider senses only work when he's fully in tune with himself and confident in his abilities and everything like that but the way it played in the movie made it kind of seem like this easy fix and like almost a deus ex machina for just making Mysterio kind of useless. Well, so the thing is, is that that's actually kind of from the comics too. His spider sense has been a little bit like Batman's utility belt over the years. Like it kind of does what you need it to do at the moment you need it to do or not do it. Um, But in the comics, they've basically, because there have been moments that like his spider sense has failed him. And in the comics, they've basically explained it like when he's really tired uh, when he's like uh, tired, sick, really stressed out or preoccupied, um, or uh, in certain environmental things like rain, um, uh, high winds, things like that, uh, then uh, occasionally his spider sense isn't as accurate or like it, can, it doesn't kick in. So even though he does have this spider sense, it's not perfect and it's not infallible. Um, like Spider-Man himself, like there are certain conditions, whether it's within Peter Parker himself or external factors that can kind of render it a little bit more obsolete 
or a little bit more uh, null. And there's actually uh, a, a, a arc in the comics that's interesting where he loses his spider sense entirely and it, he starts getting his kind of ass kicked in fights and because he doesn't he doesn't have a fighting style like he's never been formally trained as a fighter mm-hmm. uh, and so it gives him a because he doesn't have to because he has that spider sense and that agility in, in a fight uh, and so after he loses his spider sense temporarily he goes to Shang-Chi and uh, to be trained in the way of martial arts and they they create together a, a martial art that is Wally unique to Spider-Man himself um, called that Shang-Chi calls way of the spider and Peter Parker of course calls spider foo. Um, <laughs> but it's a really fun, it's a really fun little arc where it's like, what does he do if he doesn't have his power? So he actually has to learn how to fight. So I will say that it, if it seems a little convenient in like Batman utility belt in the movie, it is also like that in the comics. So okay, it's still kind of like, it's still very, uh, we'll say it's been very arbitrary how it works depending on the writer that has Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, that didn't bother me as much because I'm like, okay, that's still kind of, questionable writing but it's like that in the comics too so okay yeah it it definitely is just more of a from a stakes perspective it's sort of like wait why is this all of a sudden or it it just i wish it was more set up that it was straight up not working throughout the film because it felt like they they only had one mention of it when aunt may throws the banana at his face it was very funny but i didn't until the end of the film realized that that was supposed to set up like oh yeah he doesn't have this well no because they they did that he did have a conversation with happy hogan in the plane where they talk about that he's like oh you know your peter tingle wasn't working he's like can you please not call it that he's like also how'd you know oh may told me yeah no right but that's not until the that's not until the end of the film yeah 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 um yeah, I mean that that was my like only quibble with this movie. And again, like none none of those things like bothered me any more than I don't know. I just I left the film just absolutely loving it, especially because of those post credit scenes and Yeah. I, we haven't really talked too much about the action or anything like that, but I thought some of the action and him fighting the drones and using the sign as a Captain America shield and all that stuff was really really cool and when he's inside the illusions i thought all of that was gorgeous um one of the things i wanted to ask you about was that whole um it's not like a dream sequence but like a deception Mm -hmm. scene in i believe it's berlin was a lot of that it seemed very uh like iconic imagery and i didn't recognize anything but i'm curious if there were any you know specific shots that you were like oh that's straight from the comics um not that anything i recognize like as straight from the comics um but they did have a lot of very like steve ditko-esque like when i saw that scene i was like oh okay this reminds me very much of the scene from uh the sequence of dr strange where um Mm. it's just a lot of that uh it's just a lot of that kind of like very like 60s 70s era kind of trippy psychedelic like Dicko style artwork so i really appreciated that there's also the scene where he's in the blackness um where that reminds me actually of a scene uh a comic with him and dr strange where he's like in a 
kind of a black uh, dimension kind of like that too. And he's at the kind of his lowest and, um, and Dr. Strange is speaking to him like in the blackness, this void and basically gives him a pep talk and is like, you, you can do this and you have to bear this because you're Peter Parker and nobody else will get up. And, um, so the, the blackness of those scenes kind of reminded me of that with Dr. Strange, Hmm. um, kind of another one of those moments where Peter Parker has to figure out, okay, who are you? Like strip away the spider sense, sense, strip away the suits or who are you, Peter Parker? What kind of hero do you want to be? Um, but I didn't notice anything that was like a panel that was immediately that jumped out at me, like specifically, but it was just the style and kind of what it evoked for me was very, very similar to, to certain comics. Yeah. I loved that whole scene. I mean, that's like almost, I mean, that's, that's in the last hour and everything mm-hmm. from Jake Hall revealing himself as the villain, obviously, which is, if you know anything about Mysterio, I don't think that that was particularly uh, no. surprising, but yeah, I really just all, I don't know, all that imagery was just so fun. And it's like, I've never seen anything like that before. And so in that way, I thought that it's kind of crazy that they're still coming up with unique ways to put Spider-Man into pieces and action sets that like are feel unique and fresh, even when this is the fourth or fifth Spider-Man movie in two years. That's also one of my kind of one of my few quibbles with the Marvel Cinematic Universe is honestly, I think sometimes some of the fight sequences, especially for individual characters, can be boring. Mm-hmm. They can be really the same. Um, they're not. It's this the 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 quality of the action and fight sequences are all over the place. Um, some of them are really well done. And some I think are really poorly executed and the editing's bad and it doesn't look like you can throw a punch like, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, uh, but I will just <laughs> say the fight sequences in a few movies, even some movies that were really celebrated have left a lot to be desired. Actually, you know what? No, screw it. I'm going to say it. I don't think the fight sequences in Captain Marvel were that good. I thought they were edited poorly. Yeah. That was actually one of my huge problems yeah. with that movie and just how it was shot in general. Yeah. I think the last fight scene of Black Panther is terrible. Agreed. I think it, it's it's really bad CGI. Um, and I mean, there are a couple fight sequences. Just they're just boring. They're boring. Mm-hmm. And you can't be boring with Spider-Man though, because he literally moves in a way that no other character, literally no other character in the Marvel universe moves. Mm-hmm. And and so I thought the fight sequence with the drones. I thought that was visually like that was eye popping. And I yeah. liked how they did a lot of the first person perspective. Like it, cause I kind of hate the GoPro style of filmmaking. I hate that look and that gimmick. But I think in this case, that first person camera angle of Spider-Man flipping through all the drones, I think that really worked because he's, I feel like that's used as a gimmick and it's not earned. And I feel like Spider-Man's one of the few characters where that first person shot. Um, and that camera angle is absolutely earned because he sees things that literally no other character would see and from angles no other character would see it from. And so I, I really thought it worked well in this case where I don't always think that kind of GoPro-y um, first person 
uh, viewpoint. It usually drives me nuts when I see it, and I thought it worked really well in this movie. Yeah, I yeah I agree a lot. I was pretty surprised by how unique the filming here was because I feel like while I love Homecoming, all of the shots in that are very just straight standard. Everything's in the frame. You know, it's not particularly. I feel like this is a little judgy, but artistic, I guess. Whereas mm-hmm. in this, there were quite a few scenes, especially in the in the action, that the the camera was being used to tell a story of, oh, Peter sees this thing, he notices this thing, and we're going to cut to a close-up here. And, y- you know, like it, it felt a little more fresh, I thought, than a lot of the, the MCU films do that are very just traditionally shot. It, it also has, this movie also had fun. Um, you could tell the way, like the fight scenes and like, with him swinging, there was a lightness and a fun yeah. to the camera work that that has lacked in quite a few, most of the previous MCU films that that have gotten fairly dark. Um, even the scene on the the bus where he accidentally calls down the drone strike, which <laughs> is such a Peter Parker thing to do. Yeah, uh, he accidentally calls on the drone strike, and he like panics and his voice cracks he's like oh, look at the little baby mountain goats and and jumps you know like spider hops out of the the bus and that's kind of slow motion over the top and i love the humor of that the the i love the irony of that moment of it being such a dramatic like badass hero moment it's literally just him like in his high school bus because he was the one that actually called in a drone strike and so it just it's such a I just love the tongue in cheek humor of that scene and how very Iron Man it was. Um, and I, and I really thought that was just a fun, fun little, you know, action sequence that just shows that they, they really get Spider-Man and kind of that, like the lighthearted feeling that he brings while still being grounded that they don't take it. They take it seriously, but they don't take it self importantly, if that makes sense. Yeah. I also love that scene because he like accidentally slaps Flash and just knocks yes. him out. Yeah. And I always think about that, that like how when you're super strong, how do you not just break things all the time? So I thought that was really funny. Well, that's actually from the from Superior Spider-Man 2, uh, because that there's that one scene where um, Doc Ock, it's like right when he gets Peter Parker's body, he's fighting... Um, is it Scorpion? I think it, I think it's Scorpion and he, or I can't remember who it is, but he punches him and like kills him, like breaks his jaw off, like, like essentially punches like the bottom half of his face off and realizes that moment. Like, Holy crap. Peter Parker has been holding himself back his entire life. Like since he's been Spider-Man, he has never allowed himself to fully unleash the full extent of his powers because he, if he were to, he would absolutely have killed people and villains by now. And so it was that moment that like, they actually addressed that in the comics where it's like you, the, yeah, he realized that Peter Parker has literally been holding himself back the entire time because he knows if he doesn't, he'll kill someone. Yeah. This movie does such a good job at just understanding Spider-Man and Peter mm-hmm. Parker. It's great. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I really appreciate this version of MJ. 
I really like how they have had some nods from the comics to her, but they've changed her and really updated her for modern times. But like in the comics, she's the first one that figures out he's Spider-Man too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. In fact, in the comics, she sees him the very first night. Uh, he sneaks out to avenge Uncle Ben's death, but she doesn't say anything. She keeps it to herself because she wants to basically like protect him. And also she's basically like, it's not my secret to tell. Like if he wants to tell me, he'll tell me. But yeah, she was the very first one in the comics, even though she was kind of seen as like this ditzy party girl. Um, you realize after that and after she, she, he finds out she's the first one to realize that she's she kind of only adopts that attitude because she's had a real tough life. And so I think there's been a little bit of that that's been hinted at with this version of MJ. Um, but instead of making her kind of that ditzy party girl, they the walls she puts up are a much more believable one in kind of 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I like that you don't, I mean, there's nobody else really in big blockbuster movies. That's like MJ. Like she feels Mm -hmm. like a very unique character. And I think Zendaya does a pretty good job. I also like that she, both her and Laura Harrier are taller than uh, Tom Holland. And I think that that's funny Mm -hmm. and very Peter Parker. Yeah. Um, the one other thing I wanted to bring up was at the very beginning when they do that kind of very funny uh, to the Whitney Houston song, the like send off to oh, yes. everybody. That was such a troll. It was such a troll. Yeah. And I loved it. <laughs> it's a it's a very good way to have an exposition jump dump to make it like a, a mm-hmm. poorly made thing done by the the school team. But one thing that really like. I couldn't stop thinking about was they show a clip of the whole high school kind of getting dusted during the snap. And I was just thinking like, if that was any other thing that like, if it wasn't as innocent as getting dusted, that's a terrible thing to show in a school video. Like just people, a mass murder of people dying. And to that point, I think that this movie definitely takes everything that was so heavy about the first act of Endgame and just makes it funny, which mm-hmm. um, I think works really well in this film. But it does make me wonder, like, if you start to think about some of the repercussions of all of that, it, it gets really dark very quickly. Um, it was such an excellent troll of Marvel, though, to use that song because I started dying when they when they first had that song in the Marvel, um, the fanfare, and I was just like, a plus troll. And then they started showing the video. I'm like, okay, this must be like Peter putting this together. And then they put, I was like, oh, okay, it's the Midtown High. But then what caught me off guard was like they showed like Natasha and Tony. I was like, oh, oh, damn. Oh, OK. That actually still hurts. I was like, oh, yeah, oh, I know this is trolling and like this is meant to be funny, but oh, I don't think this is, I'm over this yet. That was a little too soon. Like that hurt. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> so. sort of how I felt, too. I was like, I, I mean, my whole theater was just roaring laughing and I was like, oh, this is funny. And then I saw Scar- uh, Scarlett Johansson or, or Black Widow and I was like, oh, yeah, that that happened. And that's pretty sad and vision and so yeah. it was it was a weird weird and bold choice to start off with that but yeah just that showing people dying was i thought was pretty weird if you if you think about it for a second but yeah yeah it is 
But it's also like, again, that's also just, I think sometimes like how would people react in a superhero world? Cause people are very resilient. Like mm-hmm. Peter Parker would need massive amounts of therapy, but like, right. <laughs> you know, you just kind of, I guess for these kids, like now that everybody's back. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, let's move on. But yeah, like how do you even move on from something like that? Like, so yeah, yeah. I'm very curious. I was looking for signs when they were on the bus on the way in and I didn't see any specifically when they, or when they stopped at that little like place near the Alps. But I'm almost positive that was Latvia, uh, which would be very interesting because now that Marvel has fantastic four and, and X-Men back, um, I would love to see Dr. Doom. I would love, love, love to see Dr. Doom in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'd also love to see Kingpin, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin yes. from Daredevil as yes. one of Spider-Man's villains. Absolutely. I agree with both of those. That would be incredible. I, I love Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin. Yeah. So. Well, because Kingpin and Mysterio are both villains that were pretty much Spider-Man villains, but then they kind of crossed over and became major Daredevil villains too. I mean, I hope that theoretically Tom Holland can keep doing this for decades or whatever. And I hope that as he gets older, the Spider-Man villains get a little more mature and kind of transition out. And then that seems to be a time when you would bring in probably a new Daredevil. Unfortunately, I really like Charlie Cox's Daredevil, but it seems like that's over. But hopefully they can do something similar with uh, J.K. Simmons and bring in vincent d'onofrio as the kingpin again because yeah. it's great i would i would love to see jk simmons at least like cameo like if he's not a major character i'd like to see him cameo and kind of yeah i think that'd be a ton of fun mm-hmm. yeah okay so let's move on to our point two section uh where we'll just talk about some of the other stuff we've been watching very briefly alicia have you seen anything you want to talk about recently yeah two things actually three things uh very different things uh one is i just rewatched today for the first time in like years is drop dead gorgeous um it's now on hulu and it was trending today on twitter because it's now on hulu and have you ever watched it before no i i'm ashamed to say that i don't think i even know what that is it's from it's from 99 late it's late 90s i want to say 99 um but it is such a phenomenally done satire and it's one of those like perfect time capsule movies where you watch and you're like oh my god there were so many people that were in it like before they were big okay um or like before they were or like or they'd been acting but before they really had the role that you know them for now uh like Amy Adams is in it and she's almost unrecognizable as this like ditzy cheerleader. Uh, Allison Janney's in it. Um, Ellen Barkin's in it. Uh, uh, Thomas Lennon does the voice of the, you never see him, but he does the voice of the documentary. And so basically it's this, um, it takes place in, it's like Wisconsin or Minnesota, Minnesota, I think. And uh, uh, it's this little podunk town is having their annual, um, a beauty pageant and it's for the the right to compete for the the state pageant and then national and it starts turning deadly 
uh, but it's a satire about just so many things. And like Kirsten Dunst is in it and Denise Richards and Kirstie Alley. And it's just, the cast is ridiculous, but so much of it is kind of, yeah, like you see Amy Adams and she's almost unrecognizable because she's so young. Oh yeah, this says it's her uh, film debut. Yeah, so it yeah it was fantastic, and I was like, man, I forgot how well done this was. Uh, so I would recommend that. By satire, do you mean is it like uh, sort of like Heather's, in that sense that it goes that direction? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, in a way, it's not as dark as Heather's, but yes, in a way. Okay. Um, Brittany Murphy's in it. Uh, she's like. So, and it made me miss Brittany Murphy again, because she's always just so bubbly and everything she's in. Uh, so that, 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 I just finished up Stranger Things season three. You let us in. And now... Doesn't make sense. I closed the gate. What if he never left? What if we locked him out here with us? He'd want to attach himself to someone again. A new host. I will say, not to spoil anything for you, I'll say the last episode and a half, I was into it for the first couple episodes. Then I was like, we've seen this already, like for the first two seasons. Like, where's this going? How is this going to evolve? The last episode and a half saved the season for me because I've gotten really tired of like, like if Elle, like, can we please get somebody that, that is formidable or competent outside of Elle? Because if mm. she's taken out off the board, like they're fucked, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so like they're, and also just move out of Hark- Hawkins already. Holy cow, people! Like, so so the last episode and a half, I feel like finally it's like finally everybody else starts pulling their weight and like it really kind of turned the season around for me. But I will say that next season for me really has to evolve in the storyline for me to stick with it because I it can only retread the same ground so many times. And it, so this season felt a lot like it kind of relied on our love of the characters and nostalgia to get us through it rather than telling a really good story this time. What do you feel about season two? Um, I liked it. I I liked it, but then it, it, I, but then by the end of season two, I was like, okay, I like this, but like, it's kind of how where's I felt too, yeah. Going. Like, where is this going? How is this evolving? Like, I feel like it's kind of the same story just repackaged, and season three feels a lot like that. But I'm hoping that by the end of this, it shows there's a there's actually a mid-credit scene that's very important. On on two two levels, it's important. And the mid what they set up the end of the episode, I'm like okay, this could be good. This could be very like a very different dynamic. But then what they send up in the 
the mid credit scene makes me worry that, oh, okay, we're just back to square one again with the story. So I liked it. I appreciated a lot about it, but I am starting to get real tired of, like, it's not a, like, must watch for me anymore. Like, the first, like, when I was heading to season two, right it was, like, a must watch. And then season three, I was, like, still excited. And now season four, I'm like, I'll watch it, but eh, okay. we'll see. Well, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what I think about it. So maybe I'll maybe I'll let you know as I get through it. I'm I'm really yeah. bad at like I always end up watching these kind of event shows just a mm-hmm. little too late because yeah. I and so by the time I'm ready to talk to people about it, everyone's just like moved on to the next thing. I'm like crap. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. I. Uh... See, I, I'm not great at, um, I'm not great at not binging things. So I try to make a point to like sit down and like make myself watch it all the way through. Otherwise I'll generally get distracted or I'll won't have time and I won't finish it. Right. So I also made a point, like I didn't have to work yesterday, obviously. And then today I, we had off technically, but I still did some, had to do some work. But I've been trying to be better about giving myself time to just not work. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to sit down and binge watch an entire, you know, episode or entire season of something on Netflix this weekend, that's fine. You do that. You've earned that. <laughs> yeah. And this is only eight episodes. This is the shortest season yet. So each season has gotten progressively shorter. That's good. So, yeah, it doesn't actually take that long to watch. Like, you can finish it in a weekend. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm always for shows that are a little shorter than they are yeah. longer, especially the Netflix ones that feel like a lot of the time it's just fluffing up. Content, they drag, but, yeah. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll say the last thing I've watched that I really kind of enjoyed recently was this week I watched, um, it's this low budget, it's only $30,000 to make. It's this low budget uh, medieval kind of horror fantasy uh, movie called The Headhunter. Hmm. It's on Amazon Prime. It was recommended to me by, um, I don't know if you follow him, but he's a really excellent uh, horror writer and or horror journalist and film critic, uh, Matt Donato. But he uh, he recommended it because he knows like medieval stuff is right up my alley. And I watched it and it's so well done and it's such a good kind of metaphor and meditation for grief and grief as a monster. But it's basically this father, it's set in medieval times. It's this father who, whose daughter's killed by a monster. So he turns into a, like he becomes like a monster slayer uh, to get vengeance for his daughter's death. Hmm. And he basically just goes through and systematically like kills monsters one by one. Like, and it's very like medieval Scandinavian monsters, like trolls and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, until he gets the one that killed his daughter, which is truly a horrific creature. But the prop work and the setting and like the costuming is phenomenal. And the entire thing was made by the director of Thanks Killing for thirty thousand. <laughs> yeah, for thirty thousand dollars. Like it's wow. amazing. So uh, it's a slow burn, but it's like it's well worth watching if you keep in mind you're like, holy, sh- this whole thing was thirty thousand dollars. Like, how did they make this for this? small amount of money it was really well done and and it looks good like does does it look like thirty thousand dollars or does it look no it looks like it looks like it was like at least a couple million wow 
I would, I would say like it, it, the cinematography is really good. Like I said, the prop work and like the creature effects and stuff are phenomenal. Even just his, um, he has a suit of armor that's so well done and so detailed that it's it, like, this was absolutely a labor of love. I feel like, cause I, I don't know how they made it for $30,000. Hmm. And so this was called what again? The Headhunter. Headhunter. Okay. And so that is on Amazon Prime. I'll check that out. Yeah, The Headhunter. And I would recommend getting it the high def version. I think you can rent it for like $4.99 or something like that. Oh, cool. But the, it, it's, it, it's worth running the HD version because it truly is like a beautiful movie. Awesome. Okay. Well, I will definitely check that out. The, uh, the movie that I saw recently, other than Homecoming, of course, or Far From Home, was Yesterday. Until a month ago, you were a complete failure. And then somehow, you became the biggest star in the world. As if by magic. So what happened? All my troubles seem so far away. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Which is the uh, the film directed by Danny Boyle and written by Richard Curtis. And just for people who don't know, that's quickly Danny Boyle. He did films like Sunshine, 28 Days Later, Slumdog Millionaire. And uh, Richard Curtis is the writer of basically every super famous romantic comedy. So, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones Diary, Love Actually. So if it's British and it's sappy, <laughs> he's written it. Yeah. So that's a combination of two people that should make this like really Good movie, probably. Um, and then the premise of this movie is that there's a music, uh, musician played by Himish Patel who just wakes up one day and he's in a world where the Beatles suddenly never existed. Um, so he starts playing the Beatles songs as his own songs. And because of that, he kind of rises in stardom and becomes really famous doing that. And the film is it's it's weird. I actually did like it quite a bit. But it's a very just straightforward romantic comedy, more so than it is like dealing with its high concept premise. Um, yeah. And but it's still directed by Danny Boyle. So like it's good. It's a very well-made movie. There's some interesting shots. There's a lot of it uh, or like a lot of kind of the more interesting scenes remind me of what he did in 127 hours, which was that mm -hmm. James Franco movie where he kind of like gets into the, yeah. the craziness of what that situation must've been like. Um, so some of that stuff is great, but then the rest of the film is just this very, very straightforward romantic comedy. So like the music, it's fun. It's great to listen to the Beatles. Um, I think the performances are all pretty good. Lily James plays Himesh Patel's love interest and mm -hmm. I think she's just a perfect person. She's just so like easily charming whenever she's on screen. But she doesn't really get a lot to do in this film. She's like just a cliche manic pixie dream girl kind of rom-com love interest. So that's a little 
bummer, a little bit of a bummer. Like you don't really know anything about her as a character outside the fact that she is the love interest. Like she doesn't have much agency in the film. But other than that, I, I did find myself just really enjoying the entire thing. Like it's not like a revolution or anything like that. And given that it's Danny Boyle, I think that's kind of a disappointment. I think he could do a lot with that premise and dig into what that means you know if you actually take it to its logical conclusion like the Beatles don't exist then what else doesn't exist and um how does our society at all like even view pop culture and things like that Mm -hmm. because they were such a I mean the film's not really interested in doing that so it's a little bit of a bummer but because it's so light and breezy and you're just having fun um it's kind of hard to knock the film when you just you're having a good time the entire time so yeah that's interesting because it's like i didn't i didn't get to screen it um i was out of town when it screened uh, so i haven't actually seen it yet but i've heard that from a few people like they liked it but it was it's interesting so i was like okay it's danny boyle and it's richard curtis who will win out because they both are such distinctive mm-hmm. one such a distinctive writer one you know or like and one such a distinctive like filmmaker they both have you know, it's like, so is this going to be more of a rom-com or is it going to be more of the existential kind of exploring? And I wish they'd lean more toward Danny Boyle's yeah. side because there's, there are a lot of questions that are asked too. Like, okay, say uh, this happened today. Would the Beatles even be relevant? Because right. if you think about it, if somebody started making Beatles music today, it wouldn't have the impact it did because now so much music is derivative of the Beatles that it's like what happens when an older band kind of comes back. Uh, for the or ha, kind of has a comeback, and then they make a song, and it just sounds very derivative. When and and the, a younger generation's going, oh, this dude sounds exactly like this band that I like, and it's like, well, that's because that band you like stole it. It's derivative of that older band that you think is yeah. <laughs> copying their work. So, I I feel like it was an interesting concept, and I feel like that's something to play with too, because I I don't think if he came back, if, if that happened, like, I don't think he'd be this enormous, huge global sensation. Cause I don't think the Beatles music would matter that much if it, if it happened today. Right. And the film just doesn't explore that at all. The kind of just like, Oh, I'm going to start playing the songs and then I'm going to play it for a little while. And they flirt with the idea of maybe for like a scene about how, mm-hmm. how much of it is the lyrics and the music versus like the, the pop sensations that they were and you know yeah they were had excellent chemistry with each other and john lennon was hilarious and all that stuff so they just barely touch on it but then they're like no now he's super famous and there's a lot of ed sheeran and we're all hanging out and we all know that the beatles are great so of course anybody who sings the beatles is going to be great and i don't think it's that cut and dry um and yeah it's a bit of a bummer that they didn't care to look into that that much. Um, But then there's like also all these other things that come up. Like, I mean, one of the Beatles was murdered uh, because he was a Beatle. Yeah. Basically. And so what does that mean? What is the implications of that? Um, The film doesn't really, it's not really trying to say anything about like art or anything like that. And I think that's because Richard Curtis was the writer and he was just very much like, mm-hmm. this is a rom-com. So I, I, I wouldn't 
I would be really interested to see what a Danny Boyle film about this subject would be with a different writer. And that's not that Richard mm-hmm. Curtis is bad um, at what like what he does. Like I said, it's standard, so it's not revolutionary, but it is charming and it's funny. I laughed quite a bit. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, the one thing I thought that was, I, I'm sure you've heard other people say this, but I thought that there's a bit played by Kate McKinnon in this mm-hmm. and yeah. she is unbearable in this. And I, I, I don't have, like, I don't actively dislike Kate McKinnon or anything. I think she's actually very good when she's in the right thing, but she was just so over the top and goofy and it did not fit in with the rest of the film at all. And I was mm-hmm. anytime she was on screen, I wanted to stop watching. But other than that, I think everything worked because it's just fun and charming. It's just not the film that it could have been. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. unfortunate. I'll have to watch it, but I'm definitely like I've I've heard that same sentiment like kind of echoed from a few people that I respect. So I'm like, hmm, okay, like I'll watch it, but maybe this will also be I'll wait until this hits like home end to to watch it right yeah okay so this has been our review of spider-man far from home alicia thank you so much for joining me today i think it was a lot of fun um is there anything that you'd like to plug uh yeah uh i guess just uh a plug adam tickets uh, atom it's a really really cool movie ticketing app uh you can send tickets to your friends you can even at some theaters, uh, pre-order concessions and have them ready to go. Um, so it's a ton of fun. And I actually run the editorial site for Adam tickets. They launched their own kind of review and editorial platform. Um, so yeah, I would just urge you to check that out. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. It's a really cool app. Awesome. And on Twitter, where can they find you? I think you're always really fun to follow and uh, I'm very yappy on Twitter, so apologies. Uh, I you can find me at Alicia Grouso, and it, that's uh, it's a weird name, so I'll spell it. It's A L I S H A G R A U S O, and you find me tweeting and being very opinionated quite often. <laughs> okay, great. So the intro music for this episode is a piece called "Work" by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com and we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing and any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening and we hope you'll join us again next or later this week when we run through Ari Aster's newest film Midsummer. Alicia, have you seen that? I have. One word? Yes, no. Meh. Uh yes. Okay. I I really loved it. I will say I did I had the same issue with this that I had with Jordan Peele's uh Us and for the same reasons I feel like in their sophomore efforts the story wasn't as tight as it was in their first ones, their first movies. 
but I still really, really loved it. And I really appreciate a lot of stuff like with us. I appreciate it. I loved it. And I thought he did thing, a lot of things really, really well. And that's a very minor nitpick. Great. Well, I am really looking forward to seeing that one. So until then, bye. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.